Thomas Boss yeah. is the proprietor of Thomas G. Boss Fine Books or Boss Fine Books located in Salem, Massachusetts. Do you have an open shop or by appointment? It's by appointment, although most of the business is done via book fair, via internet, and via some kind of quote to established customers. Perhaps what we could do is start with a, a little bit of a history. In the early 70s, I discovered this firm of Copeland and Day, and it was this was an aesthetic, turn-of-the-century Boston publisher uh, allied with Matthews and Lane and the Bodley Head. They co-published books with them. Yellow. The yellow, yellow, yellow book thing. and r around ten other uh, titles, maybe, maybe even a dozen. I'm, I've always been interested in, in book design and the physical nature of uh, books, and I was struck by how beautiful and uh, well-designed these were, and even the plainer ones were very pleasantly chased. There was a dealer in Boston called David Holmes, and David Holmes also kind of got me started because he had discovered this publisher too, and so he had some books. I bought some from him, very inexpensively. They were 5 and $10. You could still get them for $25, $50, 75 Well, now you, can, you actually, interesting enough, now you can get them more cheaply in some ways than years ago because there are some that are relatively common, not not many, but there are some that are relatively common, and there are not too many partisans, and some of the authors, many of the authors, are not popular authors. And, and because of the internet, in the old days, it was a big triumph to go out and get a Copeland and Day, oh, I, I found a Copeland and Day book, too. Now you can buy, perhaps, I, w I would say, al almost half of the publishing firms output in one day on the internet. Some of them are still $20, $15. Day was Frederick Holland Day? Yes. Was the one with the money, right? Yes, his father was a, a leather merchant, so he had plenty of inherited money. But they went into the publishing business both to publish fine books and books of, that would be interest of, to readers, but they expected to make money. Not, they're not thinking it was going to be a loss. And he and, and his partner Herbert Copeland were both Harvard students. And many of these publishing firms, such as Stone and Kimball, Copeland and Day, and Lamson Wolf, another one in Boston at the time, started because of associations, basically from school, from Harvard. So that's where where most of it came from. And, mm -hmm. and even uh, another firm called Small Maynard. So a lot of these were young, what well, not artistically inclined, but book lovers, bibliophiles, who felt that there wasn't an American. They weren't actually fine presses, were they? They were no, sort of, no. but they weren't strictly commercial either. They were a kind of a melding of the two. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, they were after I think the William Morris uh, ideal of uh, perhaps uh, some sort of a combination of hand craftsmanship, but also, of course, these were they were commercial publishers. But this was publishing in a more aesthetic way uh, to produce books that were they were often described as being dainty volumes of verse. Mm. Often fit into your hand. Exactly, yeah. hand exactly, hand sized books, lots of uh, poetry and what was considered at the time perhaps uh, somewhat forward leaning stuff, though not radical at all. Not that controversial. No, not, not particularly, although there were, there were a few little bits here and there. They really they, they wanted to be commercial, all, all of them wanted to be commercial publishers, and they all succeeded to some degree. All the publishing firms, and Copeland and Day certainly included, had two or three or four books which sold very well of Copeland and Day's um, Meadowgrass poetry by Alice Brown. Yeah, yeah. It's got a lovely cover with a gilt river. Oh, cover designed by, by Louis Reed. That sold very, very well. I think they sold a lot of copies of a book by Flandreau called Harvard Episodes. I guess simply on the local Harvard, Harvardiana market. So they produced, in the main, very handsome 
trade books, but there were also beautiful limited editions, large paper editions, finely printed editions on finer paper even, that were sometimes limited to very small numbers. 50 to 100? 10, mm -hmm. 5. The greatest of all these is a book that I was just in a, in a way dealing with recently, which was a very popular children's book that Copeland and Day published called The Arabella and Araminta Stories by Gertrude Smith with 15 designs by the posterist Ethel Reed, who's a fascinating figure on her own. This was a, uh, uh, this was a children's book that sold very, very well. There were a couple of Copeland and Day editions, and then later on, after the, the firm went out of business, it was taken over by Small Maynard. And it, eventually, there might have been 20 editions. I don't know how many copies eventually, but it was a very popular book. And for this book, which is handsomely done and slightly larger as a as a trade book than a normal what you might think of as a normal size book of poetry or a novel, they produced a large paper edition, 15 copies only. And the large paper was, in my view, the most ambitious large paper luxury piece of bookmaking done in the 1890s in America. Each of the 15 illustrations is printed on six types of Asian, interestingly colored, handmade paper. And the book itself was about four times the size of the original. And the margins were more than luxurious, they were ridiculous. So here's a book that's about six by eight inches, and in the large paper edition, we've got 12-inch margins. In some ways, it's an insane book, but it is, it's, a, it's ambitious. It's certainly a beautiful book. It also included uh, a couple of little pieces of handwork, remark, vignette, by Ethel Reed, done by hand, signed by Ethel Reed. That is the most expensive illustrated book that I'm aware of done in that period. I possess a copy. One of the 15 copies that it was originally issued was destroyed in a fire at the Harcourt building of F. Holland stuff, so he lost his own copy. That particular book, which I purchased 25 years ago, is in the stock of a, of a bookseller here. I don't think he has it with him. And it's $65,000. You can contrast that with the fact in most Copeland Day books, even now, you can get lots and lots of them for $25 or $50. Or so the range is, is, in a way, tremendous from low to high, and that's part of the charm of some of these publishers that they publish trade books, and then of some of the books that were just wonderful limited editions, and so you sort of get, again, the low and the high, but even the cheap books were, in the main, just beautifully designed. Yeah, that's, that's the attraction, obviously, for you, as, or for anyone who loves books is the obvious care and attention mm -hmm. that was paid. Now, Day was a, was somewhat of a, a designer himself, wasn't he? Well, he had ideas, I guess, but I wouldn't call him a designer. He had some, I wouldn't even call it skill, but he had some opinions about the typography or typographical arrangement or format of various books. So he had uh, somewhat of an impact, but it's not actually clear precisely what he did because he worked with designers like Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue and illustrators and William Dana Orcutt, who saw a lot of the books through the press, mm -hmm. or, the, or I should say the firm, because it's not, it's not, not a private press in any way. Just John Wilson, wasn't it? Exactly right. The printer of, of not all of the books, but maybe 85% of the books was John Wilson and Cambridge University Press. I think they had a good impact, as uh, various people do, by choosing very good printers and designers and yeah. illustrators to be involved with, and that he was able to say, well, this, maybe this is a little too busy, or let's, let's do another title page. So the, the typographic standard and the standard of book production 
was really very good, and I think for Copeland Day it was the best of all of these oh, uh, of all these publishers. Better than Stone and Kimball. Well, Stone and Kimball was probably more interesting, but Copeland Day had had a, a kind of a more uniform look. It's not that it's not to say they were boring, but you can sort of you can spot Co Stone and Kimball's too. Copeland Day seemed to do a lot with a little. What really, does that mean? It means that with a small amount of color or not much obvious design, they managed to achieve a distinctive look without being, say, flashy. A lot of Stone and Kimball books, and, and I actually collect Stone and Kimball books. I've been on the lookout for them. Oh, so you're, you're actually, I, I didn't realize it, so you're actually a collector of these things yourself. Uh, I collect so many different things. <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> it's, it's silly. Every couple of weeks I come up with a new collecting idea. And, oh, boy, and that's you're a dangerous yeah, man. One of the things that's just so lovely about these books is that they give off this aura of Love almost love and attention's been given to these. You can tell in the way they've been put together. Right. Yes. Attention to detail. A certain passion. The, the care with which these books were, were produced. With gilt on the top edge. Yes. And often, you know, uh, with uh, deckled edges. So very. Even though they're commercially printed, and some of them were letterpress printed, but most were just offset printed. But they have a somewhat handcrafted look. Was it quite dramatic, the difference between what had been available on the market to, to that point and these? I think so. The, you know, the reaction against 19th century manufacturing and the use of really cheap wood pulp paper. Which, which was common. Absolutely common. So as these manufacturing processes and the printing became easier and you could print huge numbers and you could use cheaper and cheaper materials and paper. In the 1860s and 70s and 80s, these were not particularly good years for American publishing. I mean, there were certainly important books published, but for book making, I shouldn't say publishing, book making. And so then, then it was basically Mars and revival of craft or, or art in craft that really was the spur Morrison for sort of producing these things. I guess the, if there was a demand there, but of course the public had to be shown what the difference was and that you could go back to this cotton fiber paper that was wonderful and, and thick and luxurious and, and you know robust, that you could, you could actually have books that, again, felt more like handmade objects than just things that were turned out. Uh, and they weren't hugely expensive either, I guess. N no, n I think the publishers realized that the books couldn't sell for a lot. So the books tended to be sold for prices of, of about a dollar, 75 cents. Sometimes paper covers, metal grass and paper covers was 50 cents. Of course, that was not a completely insubstantial amount of money, but it really wasn't more than other books were costing. So, you know, Copeland today, I think, of, of all the publishers, produced books that pretty much all fit into their vision, whereas uh, Stone and Kimball, you know, went through, they had Stone and Kimball, and then, and then there was just Stone, and, and it, it sort of cheapened itself. I collect Stone and Kimball, but uh, what I decided to do, by the way, is I, I pretty much kind of cut it off now. Stone and Kimball is what I'm interested in. Stone years... Yes, there's some nice books, but the best books are really the early stuff. And what I find interesting about Stone and Kimball and appealing is they experimented with all sorts of different types of covers. Oh, that's true, yes. And that's, that's appealing. Yeah, absolutely. I don't disagree. As a matter of fact, I just had to buy my fourth Stone and Kimball Poe set, ten volumes of Poe, and it comes in four versions. And one of them I had never seen, and I finally got it after many years. How much do those go for? Well, the post set 
in green cloth, depending on condition, goes for perhaps $400 or $450 to maybe 1000 depending on condition. It, it's still considered so a very good addition of pulp. For the set? Yes, for the 10 bucks. That's really not that expensive, is it? It's, no, it's not bad. And then there is a vellum-bound edition printed on handmade paper, one of 250 That's certainly uh, over 1000 maybe um, $1,500. Beautiful, beautiful binding design by Frank Hazenflug. And then there is 20 copies, 20, I think, on Japan vellum, bound in vellum. Uh, that I've only seen the one copy of that I bought years ago, and uh, it's, it's pretty rare. And then finally, there's a, there's a three-quarter leather binding, which is not particularly distinguished, but I had never seen that, and so I bought that after many years. So I have four sets of, of Poe, also the salesman's sample that could be taken around when uh, the salesman went around and yes. tried to... the dummies. Yes, and exactly, and describing what the various bindings and editions were like. You don't see those online, though. Where, where would you... What advice would you give to the, the novice book collector who's quite intrigued by what you're saying about this selection of four or five small American publishers who are keen to make a, a mark and to revive or bring over the revival that was taking place in, in England? What are some of the neatest little books that you might recommend they go after without them having to pay huge dollars? Well, one of the ones you already mentioned is the Copeland and Day edition of Meadowgrass by Alice Brown. Many, many copies were done. It's a beautiful book. There's a poster. The cover design echoes the poster by Louis Reed, and it's a pretty binding. And Alice Brown was did several books for Copeland and Day. And so that's relatively inexpensive, depending on condition, but can be a $50 book or less or a little more, depending. And, they, and it went to um, eight editions. I think there were 8,000 copies. One interesting element that it demonstrates is that at the turn of the century, apparently they did not figure that it was that useful to have the poster echo the cover design and vice versa. So many, many books have a wonderful cover design and then a poster which is entirely unlike the cover. Where would you get the posters from? Do you have to go to paper <laughs> ephemera fairs? Well, it, is a, it is a rather different thing. There are poster dealers or poster auctions. There's Swan Galleries in, in New York which has numerous poster auctions, although it's a little difficult actually. There's a, a, there's a little bit of a lack of a focus on American posters because the biggest, most expensive the posters are all French and German. Mm. They actually printed some of these posters over in France. Well, it's process. I mean, uh, uh, Stone Kimball did have a poster by Toulouse-Lautrec for the chapbook, and uh, maybe that one was printed in France. The uh, ones that were done with Copeland and Day were all done in America. Actually, I think they were all done in the Boston area. So that would be a fun thing to do for a collector. So you're saying there's the Brown book. What, what, what other books might you recommend for a collector to look for? Well, uh, there's an another book uh, that I also mentioned before, Harvard Episodes by um, Landro. That has a cover design. It's a nice red book. It has a kind of a blind stamped and gilt design by Bertram Grosvenor Goodyear, one of the big guns of the firm. He was an architect, wasn't he? He, he was. Cram, Goodyear, and Ferguson. And he was a very important architect, really. And that's what he basically is known for. But he was a fine type designer, um, book designer, book plate designer. Very, very good. So that's another one that tends to be relatively inexpensive, and there are a few thousand copies, at least a couple of thousand. And then on the fancier side, but not absolutely dramatically so, but an, a more expensive version, say Copeland and Day, is they did four books in the so-called Love Sonnet series. Sonnets from the Portuguese, The House of Life by Rossetti, 
Esther, Love Sonnets of Proteus by Wilfred Scowan Blunt, and Shakespeare's Sonnets. Those were issued in approximately 500 to 750 copies apiece. They were letterpress printed. They look a little bit like Helmstadt Press books. Now, they are more expensive, and depending on the condition, they can be had mostly for $500 and less. A pristine copy tends to be $350 or $400, but, but there still are some one cares more about. They're paper, kind of a paper-covered boards binding, and if one cares more about the interior, the binding is not interesting. Yeah. It's very, very ordinary. Then you can get a lot for your money with handmade paper and designs by Goodhue, borders, rather than... throughout? Uh, yes, and initials, really just beautifully done. And so there are four of those, and they're, they tend to be readily available because there were a goodly number of, of them printed. So that's one that's, again, a little higher price range, but not, not terribly punishing. I'm speaking with Tom Boss, who is an antiquarian book dealer, would you say? I'm an antiquarian book dealer, and yes. based in Salem, Massachusetts, who specializes in 1890s? Yes, in the 1890s, but basically in the art of the book, book binding, book design, book illustration, fine printing, 1890s to 1940, really. So okay. various design movements. But I originally started with the 1890s and have never left it. So we've looked at a few titles and a series. I've been interested in looking for the chapbook that Stone and Kimball put together. Yes. It was like an in-house magazine, wasn't it? Yes, a nice little publication. Not so easy to find, but one can find individual issues fairly readily. They all have kind of interesting contents of, of poetry and, and essays and some illustrations. Some have actually rather nice covers. Others are, are plain. comes in two sizes. The earlier issues come in a kind of a pocket size, and the later issues, they become very big, actually. It's, say, 8 by 12, even. It's a very, very big thing. Those later issues are kind of rare, but they're also, perhaps, in some ways, less interesting. And they also come in bound versions, yearly... Annuals, kind of. Yearly yeah. compilations yeah. Uh, of those. And, yes, that was probably, of all of the turn-of-the-century little, so-called little magazines, Sonny Kimball Chapbook had, I guess, probably the best reputation and really last longest of any of them. It's really at the top of the heap. What other uh, little magazines would you recommend that uh, people go for? There are actually so many. Probably... Just again for design values and uh, content. The Lotus, I'm trying to remember, I believe that's out of Chicago. Uh, there was a, you know, a lot, of, lot of Chicago area stuff. The Echo, which had a number of cover designs by Will Bradley, who sort of worked for almost all these publishers and, and so many of these periodicals. The little magazines really were just absolutely across the country. In, in California, Paul Elder published something called Impressions and Impressions Quarterly. There was a, one called The Imp and one called The Fly. In Boston, there was the time and the hour. <clears throat> That's a fascinating area because there are easily uh, 100 of these little magazines. And, I mean, there are certainly books in the subject, but not much is known about many of them. And so one can have the fun of discovering that in, in a particular issue, there's a wonderful article by some obscure writer or some, or some interesting artwork. Lots of obscure people, but I've always considered that not not any reason to not be interested. Well, especially if you enjoy their writing or if you, you like the work of the designer and, and no one really cares about them, that's a green light, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and one of the reasons, actually, that I, I perhaps didn't quite mention it, but I started collecting Copeland today is because these things were inexpensive. And by and large, 
they still are. Yeah. Uh, all of them, the little magazines, not necessarily the posters, but even some of the posters. Posters aren't that big either, are they? That's They're right. They tend to be small. One of the best posterists of that period was Ethel Reed, who worked for Copeland and Day and illustrated books for them. And just an interesting sidelight is that she was really the first American woman to have a national artistic reputation. She was that well known as a posterist. And she's almost the only woman who became known as a big-time posterist in, in that movement. They were basically all, all men. She also did almost all of her work in three years, starting at the age of 20. By 24, she never did anything again, and it's not really known precisely what happened to her. Did she die young? She, she didn't die. There is there's some thought that she uh, went blind. Oh, isn't that sad? She had an affair with the English poet Richard Le Gallienne, and he writes a poem in 1915 that talks about, in a veiled way, but it seems to be talking about her losing her eyesight. But she was a remarkable posterist, very fresh-looking, very colorful images, and a real kind of combination. She illustrated children's books, such as this Arabella and Arabella that I mentioned earlier, but the posters have a certain naughty air that, that's a little bit on the, on the decadent side. And uh, she pictures a lot of girls and women who look like herself, and uh, some of them are not exactly appropriately dressed. They're a little... A little Risque. Well, almost. I mean, you could, one could read that into it. Yeah. So she's kind of fascinating because she did all this work at a young age, and she was very attractive to men, and she, she had all these fairs, and she actually had a cover design done by the Yellow Book. She designed one of she them? Does, yeah, I believe it's volume 12. So she did one cover design and a couple of other drawings for them, and that's about the time she disappeared. No one knows what happened. She just well, I'm, I'm I'm currently at work on, oh. on trying to find out what what happened to Ethel Reed. You you know, are you going to publish a book on it? Do you think? I, I hope I hope at some point because she needs to be investigated because she's so good. She's kind of an unique figure. As a matter of fact, her posters are so popular in in a way that if you Google her name, you'll be able to buy reproductions of two or three of her posters any time of the day or night, any day. But they're all reproductions, aren't they're, they're, they? Well, but I mean, these are modern modern reproductions that, that weren't printed at the time. Yeah, and, um, but the artwork is still so popular, and yeah. yet people don't really know anything about it. She's yeah. in every poster book. Arabella yeah. and Everman's Stories poster is in every American poster book, but nobody really knows that much about her. This is off topic, but how are you chasing her down? Are you go, you're trying to get family members or friends or uh, well, with just genealogical records. people. We, there's some thought that she might have actually ended up having married an English She moved to England. We do know that. She did have a child. We do know that. But we don't know who the husband was. But we think that she may have married an English army officer and gone to India. And that might be why she really disappeared. She not only went blind, but she was in India. But just, just fascinating. And, I mean, there are sort of two reasons, I think, that books by Copeland, Daystone, and Kimball, these little publishers, the little magazines, the posters, these figures, have been so interesting to me. The physical nature of these items, the beautiful colors, beautiful printing, the great design, and the fact that from the 1890s, something like Oscar Wilde's pretty well known. But a lot of this American stuff, is even now, even having been discovered many years ago, still not very well known there's much to discover. And that's exciting. Almost any collector can find out, do mild research, or just buy some books and, or little magazines, and kind of know something that maybe no one else does.
these paths are not overly trodden on. Some of them are <laughs> relatively light, or, or, or there's nobody going down them. And so, I mean, the, the combination of the beautiful physical objects and the fact that you can find out arcane bits that really might be quite meaningful. And you can go in your own direction because there's so many authors, so many publishers. And these were interesting people, too, as you say. I mean, look at Fred Holland Day. He went into quite an important photographic career. Oh, absolutely, and that's what he's basically known for. He was a very important photosecessionist. He was, of course, legendarily difficult and jealous. There was friction between Stieglitz and F. Day. So he didn't go as far as he might, but even with his diffidence and his difficulty in dealing with him, he has quite a high profile now as an important turn-of-the-century photographer. And indeed, when I started collecting the Hopeland and Day items, there was only one thin catalog done in 1974 at Wellesley College about his photographs. Now, with the books published about Copeland today and the books on the, on the photographs, there's an entire shelf uh, about Emma. It's, it's remarkable. And still, it, he remains, in, you know, in some ways, a niche figure, just as these American 90s books and posters and things, things are. You know, much has been done, but much remains to be done. Just in closing, any other advice you might give to a collector of these books? Well, I think addition is paramount, and especially if you're dealing with decorated bindings. If you can get a really nice copy, even if you have to pay a little more, it generally is a good thing because if you're dealing with a physical object, a fine binding is a bit, or, or finely designed binding, is really a bit degraded by being worn, which is a little bit different from, say, a literary work in which the binding might be a little worn, but you know the, the sort of text is there and it's, and it's fine. But I, I would suggest that people, and I, maybe I didn't answer this before, but the sources really are for these books are right the internet. But I think book fairs are very good, so you can get a look at some of this stuff. Of course, there are library holdings and there are bibliographies of Copeland and Day. Krauss did too, a couple of the Yeah, Copeland Day and Stone and Kimball. He was supposed to do some of the other ones. Did he get around to that, or he did sort of some lists, uh, and he did an essay in. Uh, a publication called Bookman's Weekly uh, about, I think, or maybe two or three essays about Lamson Wilkins, Small Maynard. I think they were published, I'm going to say, around 19, early 1990s. Mm-hmm. And they may still be available someplace, but so that's a bit fragmentary. And, and then also I was going to say that the other way, of course, of, uh, uh, or maybe I, well, maybe I already mentioned that institutions do have good holdings in Chicago. For instance, Newbury Library has the greatest collection of Stone and Kimball. There's also a very good collection up in Montreal, by the way, at the McGill Library. Oh, right, right. Okay, yes. These things can be seen, I think. uh, And, of course, online, there aren't any particular sites, but you can, by getting Google images of Stone and Kimball or various artists, you can get a fair number of pictures of these things. Yes, because some of them are plain... And some of them are quite decorative, and you know, if you want to go after the decorative ones, you pretty well have to do that, exactly what you've said. Right? Well, yeah, that's, ex- that's exactly right. And so people can focus on specific uh, designers. You know, some covers by Sun Kimball might even be considered slightly lurid or flashy. Others are, are far more plain, or particular designers like Frank Hazenplug was very active. Stone Kimball, and he did, I, I, I've forgotten the number now, but it's probably, probably did 75 designs, and some are very beautiful Richard Legallian's prose fancies. Yes, it's beautiful, isn't it? A very exciting design. And I didn't mention, by the way, that there's one more Chicago publisher who's wonderful, Way and Williams. So in total, mm-hmm. there'd be, what, about 500 to 1,000 Well, published? if you put together William Doxey in California and, say, Way and Williams and Stone and Kimball in Chicago and R.H. Russell in New York 
and Lamson Wolf and Copeland and Day and Small Maiden in Boston. Those are pretty much all of them. There are a few other also rands. Johnny Kimball's 300, Copeland Day's about 100, Lamson Wolf. Yes, it's certainly more than 500. Probably gets almost 1,000. Yes, exactly. R.H. Russell, I won't go into it particularly, except to say that they actually display the greatest variety. Uh, you know, they publish huge books and little tiny books and books of illustration and textbooks and all sorts of things and theatrical programs. And so that's the one, if someone wants to be sort of super eclectic, or you have lots of Will Bradley design also. Yeah. That's great. Well, thanks for all of these nuggets and incentives for people to get out and uh, spend money and, and enjoy the fruits of their, uh, their searches. Absolutely. Thank you. It's absolutely wonderful to be involved in these things, to, to talk about them, and I hope more people will find this material, find it, collect it, keep it, save it, savor it. And think about it and write about it. Exactly. I've been speaking with uh, Tom Boss, who's an antiquarian uh, bookseller in Salem, uh, Massachusetts, and we're here at the uh, Boston Antiquarian Book Fair uh, 